Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Jesus was with his disciples, he wanted to to teach them how to pray, so he started by saying, okay, pray like this. Our Father, we know this prayer, right? But let's stop right there. Hard stop. Our Father. We say that prayer every single Sunday. There have even been a couple Sundays where I lose track of what's going on in the service, and we prayed it twice on a Sunday morning. But sometimes I wish that we could stop after every single clause of that prayer, almost every word, and parse it out just a little bit. So I want to stop and dwell on those two words, our Father. We're actually going to just sit on the word Father for the next three weeks. And we're going to ask some vitally important questions about the name Father. Why do we call God Father? Is that name problematic? What does it even mean to call God our Father? What about our actual earthly fathers? What did Jesus mean when he called God Father? I want to begin today by asking some of these fundamental questions. And the first one uh, is this. Is God male? Is God male? I was an art history major in college. Some of you know that. So some of the most thrilling hours of my life, this is not a joke, some of the most thrilling hours of my life were those six hours a week that I sat in a dark room, totally dark, looking at slides of great pieces of art and talking about them. I saw images like this one. This is William Blake's Ancient of Days. It depicts God the creator as a white-bearded, cosmic, floating patriarch that's reaching down to earth, reaching down to humanity. This is the God the Father that is most commonly depicted throughout art history, not unlike Michelangelo's eponymous depiction of God the Father that some of you may have seen in the Sistine Chapel. These are decidedly male depictions. I did come across several artists who at least seem to creatively struggle with their depiction of God the Father. This is the German sculptor Ernst Barlach, and he offers a more original sculpture of God the Father, whose hands are extended and longing for involvement in the world, yet his eyes are turned up and away as if he's unable to keep looking on all That is done on earth, the earth that he created with his hands. Others depict God the Father more abstractly, like the German Lutheran painter Caspar David Friedrich. This is called Woman in the Morning Sun. And it is meant to depict the very nature of God the Father. He doesn't even try and depict God in human form in this painting, but he chooses just a shaft of light from a rising sun instead. And what we see in these pieces of art is a fundamental issue in art. The earliest Jews adopted rules around any sort of depiction of God. It's part of their Ten Commandments. The second of those Ten Commandments is, you shall not make an idol, a graven image of heavenly things. For this reason, Jews didn't even try to depict God. They were the first iconoclasts. That means that they were opposed to any sort of depiction of God because they didn't want to slip into idol worship. 
We see different forms of iconoclasm throughout art history because the Judeo-Christian tradition wrestles back and forth with representing God and not wanting to misrepresent God and concerned about slipping into idol worship. Now, if you visited my office before, you will know that I am not an iconoclast myself, but I can't help but sympathize with the iconoclastic movement at times when I think about this question, is God male? Because it's impossible to depict God. It's impossible to depict God. So the answer to that question, is God male, is of course, no. I'm only three minutes into my sermon and I've answered the question of the sermon. I don't know what that means for the rest of the sermon, but the answer is no, God is not male. God doesn't have a gender. God says in Exodus 33:20, you cannot look at my face for no one can look upon me and live. John 1:18 says, no one has ever seen God. We don't know and can't know what God looks like, but it hasn't stopped every culture from trying. And most of our depictions look like a white-bearded, pillowy, celestial judge that's presiding over us. This is the image that we can't help but go to when we think of God the Father. But the alternative uh, array of sunlight or some other abstraction probably isn't super helpful either, right? So it's worth saying this morning that God is not a form to be viewed or understood. Our text today in Isaiah 64 says, there is no one who calls upon your name or attempts to take hold of you to grasp you, for you have hidden your face from us. So a good place to begin this morning is to say, whatever concepts we have about God are likely wrong or at very best are partial in understanding. So no, God is not male. Our understanding of gender is conditioned first and foremost by biology, and God does not have a body. So therefore, God does not have a gender. In Genesis 1, there is the most ancient of hymns where we get a fuller sense of God. It says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a, a fascinating text that is foundational to our faith. We're created in the image of God. My brothers and sisters here, we're image bearers. That's a sermon for another day. But know that when God created you, he fashioned you in his image. But have you ever thought about the reverse implications of this? That if God created us, male and female, in his image, that means that both genders, male and female, are reflections of God. God is above and beyond gender, but he is the holder of both male and female characteristics and attributes. In fact, we see this in scripture with some frequency. We are very accustomed to hearing about God the Father. That happens many, many times throughout scripture. God with, with traditional male attributes, but God is also referred to quite frequently with female metaphors and traditionally, traditionally female attributes as well. God is a mother bird in Ruth chapter 2, protecting her young. He's a human mother in Job 38, a midwife in Psalm 22, a woman breaking, baking bread in Luke 13 or sweeping the floor in Luke 15. Yes, 
God holds all our maleness and femaleness. And we see that in Scripture. For some of you, this is no great revelation, but I don't doubt that some of you bear scars from a heavy-handed patriarchal faith tradition, tradition that uses the designation of Father God to frighten children or silence women or create gender hierarchy that Scripture never intended to be there. We've seen regularly in the news how an an overly patriarchal culture can be deeply damaging and sinful. I'm here to tell you that any view of God which causes us to feed into that patriarchal culture is not scriptural and it's deeply sinful. God is neither male nor female. Which brings me to my next question. Why do we call God Father? If God doesn't have a gender, why do we call God Father? In a world of of gender-inclusive language and practice, why don't we call God Mother or refer to God as she? If God is genderless, why do we use the pronoun he exclusively in Scripture? There have been some movements in this direction since the women's liberation movement of the 70s, the rise of feminism in our culture. In fact, some Christian communities have produced translations of the Bible that offer divine gender inclusion, referring to God as both father and mother alternatively, or alternating pronouns for God, or choosing a neutral pronoun. But I think this is a problem. Yes, it's true. We use uh, gender-inclusive translations here at Hinsdale Covenant, and I stand steadfastly by our use of brothers and sisters in Scripture rather than brothers or mankind instead of man. But our translation refers to God as father and uses the pronoun he exclusively, even in a gender-inclusive Bible. Why? Well, because that's what the text actually says. We talk about humanity in in gender-inclusive terms because it's clear throughout Scripture that God's revelation through Scripture is for all his people, sons and daughters, men and women, boys and girls. But the text clearly calls God Father and clearly uses the pronoun he. It would be textually inaccurate to refer to God as she, and it strikes me as irreverent or impersonal to refer to God as it. That's not acceptable for me. Some will say that God as Father is simply culturally conditioned from ancient and first century patriarchal world. But then I would ask the question, why then does Jesus refer to God as Father? We're going to ask that question in a couple of weeks, but do we really believe that Jesus, who consistently supersedes the patriarchal culture of his day throughout his ministry, wouldn't do so in his designation of what he calls God? Is it even possible that Jesus had a flawed view of the Father? (laughs) I think not. So in the end, God reveals himself as the Father of the people of Israel, and Jesus picks up that refrain. This is the chief descriptor, the chief descriptor that God uses to describe his nature, his purpose, his character to his people. The historic characteristics of, of, of a father are blessing and guidance, discipline, leadership. This is how he chooses to reveal himself to his people. He's not bound by cultural norms, and he chooses this descriptor of father. And that's enough for me, and I think it should be enough for you. I think people can be uncomfortable with this. 
but not usually because of the designation itself nor the character of God, but because we all have concepts of fathers and fatherhood, and some of us carry significant baggage in that area. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. But my word today on that is that we should do some heart work on this designation of God the Father so that we can get to a point where we can accept and are thankful for all that God the Father denotes and entails for us as his children. So one more question in our series of questions. What does this topic have to do practically with my faith today? Why does this actually matter? Why are we preaching on this lot? Well, first, I think this matters because a faulty conception of God can do a lot of damage to our faith and the lives of those around us. If we lean too heavily into a male designation of God the Father, then we fail to understand the nature of God and can perpetuate a belief in an overtly male-dominated system or even a male-dominated church. On the other hand, to be too loose with this, to call God it in a non-gendered sense, ignores the chosen way that God has revealed himself to us. So I suggest that we assert that God is not male or female, that his title of father is meant to bless us and be a foundation of our relationship with him. Second, this conversation matters because I don't want us to slip into unintentional idol worship. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to fashion God like Michelangelo did or to react against such a rendering and go the other way, fashioning God in some other image that he did not intend. To make God gendered, male or female, is truly to fashion him in our image instead of resting in the fact that we are fashioned in his image. Our text from Isaiah 64 illustrates this well. A little bit of context for this. This is a cry, a plea, a people, Israel, reaching out to God in oppression and exile through this prophet, Isaiah. They cry out with specific appeals, appeals that God would be faithful as he was in the past, appeals that God would respond, appeals to their own sinful nature, hoping that God will hear them. But in the midst of this, there are two strong assertions. The first is that God is unknowable, that he's in control, that we don't get to control him. It says that God is not something that's supposed to be understood or grasped. And then verse 8 is so powerful. It says, yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter, the work of your hands. I find this definition of our relationship with God to be really helpful for us this morning. We're the clay. God is the potter. We're in his hands, not the other way around. The clay is a reflection of the creative energy of the artist, and it bears the marks of his creative force. The clay does not have a say in how it's formed. Its job is simply to yield to be centered and molded and made useful. That is not to say that we are lifeless, by the way. I talked to my brother a little bit this week who teaches ceramics regularly, and he said, oh no, clay is not static. It can be unruly and wobbly and lumpy. It can be too loose or too tight and sometimes can have a will of its own on the wheel. It's the potter's job to know the constitution 
of the clay through which much skill and creativity it will be made beautiful. My fear for myself is that I often act like I'm the potter and God is the clay. I mold him and I make him the way that I want to. I try and box him in to something that makes sense to me. How he should act, what he should say, how he should lead, how his character should manifest itself, and as we talked about today, what he looks like. This, my friends, is the essence of idolatry. I often echo the people of Israel through Isaiah 64. I, I, I try and box him in. Here's what you should do. Here's what you've done in the past. Here's what, how I think that you should act in my life. But I forget to echo that last line, that powerful line, yet, O oh Lord, you are my father. I'm the clay. You're the potter. I'm in your hands. And you will never, ever, ever be in my hands. Maybe the earliest Jews weren't so foolish after all. Those original iconoclasts so frightened to represent a holy God in any way. Maybe that kind of conviction could keep us from the idolatry of the white-bearded God in heaven that we so often see. Maybe that kind of conviction could release us from, seeming, from the seeming need to, to have to know what God looks like in order for us to be able to relate to him. Maybe we should take a page out of their book. I have one more piece of art to show you. In 1932, uh, archaeologists uh, uncovered the oldest known synagogue in the world. It's called the Synagogue of Dura Europis. It's in Syria. And the earliest inscription that they found in the synagogue is from 244. 244 AD. That's, that's amazing. This is a finding that shook the artistic and archaeological world, particularly those that have studied the history of Judaism. When they entered the synagogue, they expected to find whitewashed walls, a traditional floor plan, plan, an iconoclastic classic Jewish synagogue. But what they found was actually some remarkably preserved art. This is the inside of that. Colorful uh, Colorful on the walls from floor to ceiling. Depictions of biblical stories like David and Moses and the visions of Ezekiel. It's a stunning discovery to find this Jewish community that made these images in in what we assume would be a violation of the commandment to not make a graven image of anything. But as they uncovered the artwork, they found something else that was really fascinating. They found a certain depiction of God the Father that shows up numerous times throughout these biblical stories. Here's one. This is one of Moses. Do you see the hands at the top of this fresco? There's a depiction of God the Father. Hands, neither male nor female, they strike me as both strong and delicate. Here's another one. They show up in nearly every scene on the walls, reaching down to bless and intervene and mold and center, sort of like a potter's hand at work on the wheel, always creating, passing on his image to his people and at work in creating beautiful things in this world. This is my favorite depiction in all of art history of God the Father anywhere. (laughs) Because it leaves God concealed, but it's still totally present in the story of his people. We aren't tempted to see God in these frescoes as 
man or woman. Indeed, we're not really tempted to see him as human at all. Instead, we see the character and creativity, the intervention and the blessing of God the Father. When I see these frescoes and I see those hands reaching down, that feels like the Father that I pray to, the Father that I meet in Scripture, the one that will not be idolized in an image, will not be grasped or contained or held, one that doesn't fit into our little boxes. As we continue to talk about God the Father over the next couple weeks, I want you to be challenged with a couple questions. How are you boxing God in? How are you trying to mold him into an image that makes sense to you rather than letting him simply mold you? God will not be boxed in. No image that we could create would ever be sufficient. He is the potter and we're the clay. I'm going to invite you to pray with me if you close your eyes. Lord, you are unsearchable. You are unknowable. You are beyond what we can conceive or know, and yet, yet, Lord, you come, you reach down to meet us. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we've conceived you in such a way that we've made you a small God that fits into our image, something that makes sense to us. Lord, we ask that you would bust out in a dramatic way out of the boxes that we create around you of what you should look like, who, how you should act, who you should be. Lord, I pray that we might be more like those Israelites through the prophet Isaiah who recognize our condition, who we are, recognize your character, who you are. And at the point where we realize that we're beginning to box you in, Lord, that we're able to echo those words. But Lord, you are our father. You're the potter. We're the clay. The work of your hands. May it be so. We pray in your name.